Hello and welcome to Crafting the Crypto Economy. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager at Owl Explains by Ava Labs, and today we bring you a transformative podcast series in partnership with the Crypto and Blockchain Economic Research Forum. This series features leading faculty from renowned global universities exploring various elements in the blockchain ecosystem. These episodes are a bit longer than our usual hootenannies since we will be getting very deep. And also, each episode will have its accompanying paper posted on our website for further reading. And with that, I will hand it over to our moderators, Fahad Saleh and Andreas Park. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the SIBA Crafting the Crypto Economy podcast, uh, where Fahad Saleh and I, Andreas Park, um, meet with researchers uh, in the field of crypto economics um, and trying to understand their work better and trying to explain this to you, our audience. I'm very happy today to have Agostino Caponi with us. And as we normally do, Agostino, why don't you uh, introduce yourself very briefly? Absolutely. I am Agostino Caponi. I'm an associate professor in the Industry Engineering and Operations Research Department at Columbia. And I'm broadly interested in topics related to market microstructure, crypto economics, and financial networks. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you, Agostino. I think in many ways you embody the ideal person working on crypto and blockchain because you are an engineer by training, as I understand it. You also work on economic problems, so you understand both sides really, really well. Now, what we want to talk today about is uh, some concept which is referred to as just-in-time liquidity and decentralized exchanges. Now, we've had already one of our podcasts on decentralized exchanges, but just in case, um, to make sure that our audience understands what is going on and what actually decentralized exchanges, maybe in just two or three sentences, can you explain a DEX to us? Yeah, absolutely. Probably decentralized exchange is a type of financial innovation that uh, aims at providing uh, liquidity in a decentralized fashion. So what decentralized fashion means is that uh, the, the market makers in this space, who are also called liquidity providers, will deposit liquidity, typically in the form of tokens, into a pool. And this pool is shared among all these uh, liquidity providers. And then it will be accessible to all traders who want to execute trades, typically in the form of swapping one token for the other. And the underlying technology which makes this work is typically blockchain technology where you can submit orders of depositing liquidity, so somewhat the equivalent of a limit order in a limit order book, or market orders, uh, which are essentially orders to extract liquidity in the pool uh, submitted by traders. So, you know, one of the things that that strikes me about decentralized exchanges and um, actually people looking into this is, and you probably had the same feeling as I did, Agostino, is like, so we are all working on in a field called market microstructure. Market microstructure is a field which tries to study how trading institutions, so that's like regulations and trading rules, fees, and generally how the market plumbing works and how that affects outcomes such as allocative efficiency, which means that people who value something the most get it information efficiency that you know that the price is right and just generally trading costs um, how they affect how people interact with one another and the one thing that strikes me about decentralized exchanges is that literally anybody who looks at it first goes this is nuts 
right? I mean, you know, you have a computer which runs a simple piece of code and, and tries to simulate a market. And at the same time, then anybody who looks at this more carefully thinks, wow, this is actually really clever. The people come up with some really clever ideas here. Now, um, what we also see is that this market and the technology behind it and the concepts actually are evolving. So, you know, it started, it, I, I'm just going to brush over this very briefly, but I think in about 2020 in the summers when Uniswap went public with a relatively simple mechanism, uh, a year later we had Uniswap uh, V3, the third version. Um, you know, the first one, in case nobody knows, it actually just means you could only trade the Uni token against Ether, as I understand it. And then Uniswap V3 had a completely different, not completely different, but had a very refined model. And now we see more and more iterations of this with more and more new ideas. And uh, so sometimes it's a little hard for us to keep track of this. Um, but I hope this podcast will be useful here. So we want to discuss a topic that is now introduced in decentralized exchanges, which is called just-in-time liquidity. Now, Agostino, can you maybe just outline for our audience what that really means? How would this work? Yeah, absolutely. So let me first uh, start with uh, the, 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 the traditional way of providing liquidity in this uh, decentralized exchange, which is essentially, as I mentioned before, you deposit uh, tokens into a pool, and then you have uh, an algorithm, as, as you mentioned, Andreas, which is also referred to as the smart contract, which will take care of determining the prices, like what, at what price you trade one token for the other. Typically, these uh, market makers deposit liquidity in the pool and then they observe uh, other investors trading. So in a way, the traditional form of uh, market making is rather passive, like the trading I mean, uh, prices change only after a trade and liquidity providers are typically leaving the tokens in the pool for some time. Uh, now, a new... Let me, uh, let me interject there yeah. for a second, because I think this is actually one of the really cool features, especially about the simple ones, is that, you know... People like you and I can become liquidity providers, right? So you deposit your assets and provided you it's, it's done in the right way, this should be something how you can actually earn extra income. So it's very different how we think of normal markets where there is like a sophisticated market makers and certainly differently than equity markets where there is, you know, these high frequency trading bots from Virtue and Citadel uh, ready to trade most of the time, right? So sorry to interrupt you there, but um, I thought I'm just going to interject this because I think the audience needs to appreciate that too. Yeah. You know, it's a great point. I think exactly, as you said, liquidity providers can be and are typically unsophisticated uh, entities who just profit from the fees that uh, they make when investors trade. Because investors who trade assets deposit in the pool have to pay fee, and this fee accrues to the liquidity providers. So even better, it's shared among all those who have provided liquidity in the pool. Uh, now, I mean, just in time, liquidity is somewhat uh, a new form of market making, which somehow changed the paradigm from passive liquidity provision to more active liquidity provision. Now, before I discuss what it means in the context of decentralized exchange, I think I would like to give some uh, somewhat um, historical description of just-in-time. I think this concept, uh, I learned this concept when I was actually a student at the University of Rome. Long time ago, I was taking a class on operations research there. And uh, and the one and my professor mentioned, okay, there is uh, there are different methods of production or managing inventory. One is the traditional method where you order uh, the quantities you need in order to produce cars or to produce uh, or to manufacture any any good. The other method uh, is called just in time, 
which is essentially an inventory management method where goods are received from suppliers only when they are needed. So it might sound like very difficult to, to implement such a method, right? Because uh, it means that uh, you really only want to have, let's say, uh, wheels and tires to assemble uh, into a car precisely at the right time of the sequence. You don't want to have too many wheels, too many tires in the inventory, but you just want to have them when you need to manufacture the car. So it requires a lot of coordination among suppliers like and, uh, and, and, and producers. Like You need to supply the good exactly at the right time. If something happens, if there is disruption, of course, this method would miserably fail. But on the other end, I think, as you can imagine, and as, um, as I mean, we also see uh, in, uh, in finance, like this method is basically designed to reduce the inventory holding costs because you really have very, very limited inventory. And you also have, uh, like, uh, really, you increase the inventory turnover. So it's a practice that was started uh, in Japan. I think the Japanese uh, came up with the, with the business philosophy for the first time. And the idea was to improve operations, like from the assembly line workers to the CEO. So they wanted to make everything extremely smooth and efficient. Now, I think the concept of just-in-time liquidity... So, can I, yeah. can I just ask for one second? Just out of curiosity, since you bring it up, right? So, is the, the main challenge here, is that is it merely um, an organizational conceptual one, or is there also an economic question here, such as increased transportation costs, for instance? Is that... Because, you know, imagine... I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe this is a stupid example. Let me just say it, right? So, you know, I can either buy, you know, shop at Costco and buy huge quantities, which I store at home, or I can go every day and go to the store and pick up the stuff that I need. And the concept and the difference is, in, you know, I buy stuff at Costco in bulk and I keep it, but then it's hanging around in my, my you know, in my, my, my pantry for a while. Whereas if I have to go to the store every day, this is taxing on my time. Is that is that actually the main trade-off or is this really just uh, something that you is is that the question that we're after here um i think and there is this is a, this is definitely i mean um, uh, there is this concern this trade-off that you incur between like uh, uh of course transportation costs because you need to transport the good uh, more times like instead of piling it piling it up on your inventory i think in this in, in the case of like uh, production uh, system is definitely a concern in the case of financial markets, somewhat this becomes uh, also uh, a concern, but somewhat, I, I mean, at least in, based on the analysis that I've done, it seems to be a more limited concern compared to physical goods. Yeah, let me move to, like, uh, how, how do we apply this concept in finance, right? Or what does it mean in terms of, uh, in terms of finance and exchanges? So the idea, basically, is uh, we think about decentralized exchanges, uh, we, we, so far, we are used to liquidity providers who are these unsophisticated investors uh, who decide to deposit assets in the pools, again, in the form of tokens. Now, uh, with just-in-time liquidity, this liquidity is not provided uh, at the very beginning, at inception, and then stay in the pool, but rather it's provided on the fly. Can I just briefly interject? So you, you went from talking about like sort of the, the physical goods context and... Uh, and uh, I thought you were going to talk a little bit sort of in the maybe the pure finance context, almost traditional finance, but you sort of you, you've already kind of jumped into the decentralized finance. And so here I had kind of a, a question, though, because as you were explaining the, the physical uh, asset case, I was thinking, well, so in that case, if I understood correctly, uh, the producer has already identified the supplier. Right. Um, so it's like I would like this, the, the, this the, the, you know, this input as soon as possible or, or something like that. We're, but in the DeFi context, 
right? It's, um, I want to trade. Um, I'm not specifically asking any particular person to provide me the liquidity, right? So, right. I me, mean, I think in the, in the in the traditional physical context, I agree. You have to establish uh, a relation with your suppliers, and in fact, you tend to rely on the same set of suppliers, those who are produ- those who are delivering on time, right? Because if they don't deliver on time, you might have delays, and therefore your production can even fail. Now, when we think about finance or financial contexts. Uh, this, I mean, this, 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 um, the, the fact that you are uh, providing liquidity to a specific unit or a specific entity becomes uh, somewhat less uh, clear. So you just provide liquidity into a pool for whoever wants to trade. You are not really uh, serving a specific customer, right? You are serving the entire pool, uh, which basically means whoever is uh, is there and he wants to trade. So it's not really a one-to-one map like uh, in the tradition of physical good where companies like Japanese company, for example, they have established a relation with suppliers and each company has a different relation with the, with their own suppliers. Here, like we think about the suppliers to be like a pool of uh, like service providers. And then we think of uh, the, the traders as being those who consume this liquidity. And it's not really a one-to-one relation. Right now, so I was I was just trying to think about whether there is um, a distinction between doing it with a physical asset versus a financial asset, and then a further distinction between having a centralized finance context and a decentralized finance context. So, for example, if I was thinking about your physical asset context in just like a traditional finance context, the closest thing I could think of is something like I call my broker and I say I want to trade this thing. So then there's like a specific you know specific person I'm asking. And they actually, even if they don't really have it on hand, they, they do the trade and then they basically have to go figure it out, um, which I guess is already a little bit different in the production context. But then the, the DeFi context is just an order of magnitude more complicated, I think, from the economics, precisely because I'm not calling up a particular person and saying, I would like this trade. Um, and I, guess I guess you'll get into that, but yes. Yeah, so, so. yeah, it's not really an over-the-market counter uh, counter setting where you call the broker and you decide on the term of the trade, so you have this cost to incur. Here, it's more like similar to somewhat an exchange, like you directly deposit uh, the liquidity for whoever is there and available to trade. Another point, I think, is that typically in the physical uh, world, I think as Andreas mentioned, you have this transportation cost that you have to incur, so every time you deliver the good, you have to... To, to pay for the costs. Now, I think in the concept of finance, like you don't have the same uh, as the transportation cost, but I think an equivalent there, and I will get to that maybe when we discuss in more details the nuances of this formal liquidity provision, is that you need to pay fees in order to deliver, right? In order to, to get your uh, liquidity accepted by, by, by the pool. But another thing, actually, I think is really in- interesting here is that I mean, normally when we think of liquidity provision is that you give other people an option to do something. And you can structure a liquidity provision in various different ways. So in limit order books, you can post different orders in an AMM. So in an automated market maker that we're talking about, you can, I mean, the the, the pricing function takes care of some of that, right? So in a, in a very standard one, because somebody wants to trade a lot, actually has to pay a higher price. And in the versions like Uniswap, the the third iteration, you can also post differently. So you can provide different amounts of liquidity at different times. Now, if I can put this back as to to really basic economics. In basic economics, the the very first time we thought about uncertainty and, and markets, we think of what's called a complete contingent plan. So you try to figure out 
all of the different uh, states of the world, things that can in the future, and you make a plan for this, and you basically prefix your decision that you would make under those circumstances. So just for the bigger audience, this has been a, uh, a topic which people have discussed in the 60s and 70s in economics. And, uh, you know, we know that these markets can work rather well, right? So in, in the way where you can make all these plans, you know, whether you take them at the time or in the future makes no difference, right? You would do the same thing because you know everything. But we know reality is different, right? Reality, we don't actually know everything. We don't know all unknowns, unknowns. And so people have like to have the option to actually not do something or maybe do something at a later stage, something that they haven't anticipated. And that creates sort of like the, the just-in-time liquidity decisions that we're now talking about, right? So Because otherwise, we could just program everything that we want to do, but we don't really want to do that here, right? So there's sort of like contingencies that you have to think about. And this brings me back to my cost of my friction because here I would imagine as a, somebody who wants to act this way, you have to monitor the market. So that's kind of a cost that you have as a liquidity provider. Right? Completely agree with what you have said, Andreas. I mean, if I can add, uh, like this timing or delay uh, is really key in just-in-time liquidity. No? The idea is that you basically want to observe uh, first what is uh, the order flow. Typically, this order flow consists of trades that have been submitted uh, for execution and they are pending in the so-called memory pool of validators. And then you want to actually add or provide liquidity for these orders. And after these orders have been executed, you want to take out liquidity. You want to retract all. And you would like to do that all in a single block. So that's basically the basic idea. No? And the timing is important because in a way, you can think of this uh, uh, just-in-time liquidity providers to have uh, the so-called last mover advantage. Now, we always think about the first mover advantage in finance or economics, but in this case, I think it's the other way around. Now, you, you can observe what is available and then you can decide whether or not you want to, to provide liquidity or not. And uh, I mean, and I think related... Yeah. Can I interrupt yeah. you there? Because I think there's a very interesting insight here because that actually goes at the heart of how, um, how liquidity provision works um, in a decentralized market relative to, say, a limit order book. Because you just mentioned the last mover advantage, right? So now I think for our audience, it's important to understand if you post, for instance, at the same price in a limit order book, you would still be last to trade because of time priority, right? Whereas in the AMM, there is no time priority as such. Um, if you provide liquidity, the way this would work is that all liquidity gets provided and then all the goods essentially will be shared. Everything will be prorated. Right. So I think this is a very crucial difference here, right? Yeah, that's the key. That's a key difference. I absolutely. I mean, I think another point to make is that uh, in a way like uh, this, um, uh, if you think about uh, traditional exchange, they operate in continuous time and there the latency is the key problem. No? It's a first come, first serve principle. But here instead, transactions are settled uh, discreetly, like a discrete point in times, you decide which transactions to include in the blocks. And, uh, and that's exactly the reason why liquidity providers can take advantage of the order flow and decide what to do, because it's like if they can glimpse the pending orders and they can decide on the liquidity provision, which is something inconceivable in traditional exchanges, because as you said, uh, you have uh, limit, you can only observe limit orders who are somewhat resting in the book, those that are waiting to be matched against market orders, but you will never be able to observe market orders. Like uh, you only 
see everything after execution has happened. So if I could ask, okay, could we, um, just to make things concrete, could we just walk through an example of how exactly this works, right? So let's say I want to do a trade. I want to do a large trade, right? And I think one important distinction, again, coming from sort of the, maybe where the analogy with the physical assets breaks down, if I want to do a trade, I'm not specifically going out and talking to a particular liquidity provider. I'm just going to send a transaction into the network uh, with that trade size, et cetera. And sort of you've been alluding to this point that uh, the liquidity providers, the, the, the active liquidity providers are going to be able to see that. So could you clarify where exactly, like, are they validating nodes or, you know, how do they exactly see what this is? And um, and I guess there's a question also about competition dynamics, which touches on this thing you're talking about, preferring to be the last instead of the first, because I'm not, as the, as the person who's trading, I'm not specifically calling somebody up. Um, and that means that multiple people can, in effect, you know, answer the phone, so to speak. So could you clarify from the point at which I send the transaction in? I'm, I'm just trying to trade, let's say. How do these active liquidity providers observe the transaction, the trade that I want to do? And uh, how does the mechanics of kind of how they then react? And, you know, who is they in some sense is also part of this question. Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Fad. So the, the idea is that uh, you, I mean, Liquidity providers, we should think of them as uh, the equivalents of the high frequency trading traders in the traditional market. These are like um, these are entities with very sophisticated technology who are scanning continuously the the, the main pool. Right, the main pool is this large uh, uh, memory. Of, that's the yeah. You you can only observe the public main pool. If a trade, if a swap, suppose that we have a swap order. You want to swap, let's say, an Ethereum token for some. Uh, uh, USDC tokens, like for a stable coin. Now, if, there, if these trades were to be submitted to a private pool, right, then there is no way for a just-time liquidity provider to observe it. So there is no way to provide just-in-time liquidity. If instead this order is submitted to a, through a public pool where there is full visibility about the order flows, then I observe this flow and I say, okay, um, Fad wants to trade, uh, not Fad, but because it's anonymous, but there is uh, an order of swapping uh, this Ethereum uh, token for uh, USDC tokens. Then the first question that I would ask myself is, okay, is this going to be an informed order or an informed order? Like, is this large swap going to be, uh, I mean, has been submitted by some trader who has information about prices and therefore he, press, I mean, he wants to trade because he knows that the price will go up and therefore he wants to take advantage of the current misalignment, I mean, the current like lack of information revelation and therefore trade uh, at a lower price or not. So I need to first to detect whether or not is this trade disorder is informed or not. If I'm a, if I'm a very sophisticated um, market maker or a liquidity provider, like somebody somebody who has like this technology that high frequency traders have and can scan like multiple venues to understand whether or not there is information or not in the order, then I will say, okay, if it's uninformed, let me top uh the enemy provide a lot of liquidity or so that uh this swap order will be executed and uh what is my benefit my benefit is that i will gain from the fees right because there is a large swap order that wants to be executed as a result uh, i will gain large amount of fees from this execution so but just just to clarify the, the benefit of just if I can step in here, the benefit of providing a large amount of liquidity is that so that I will be a larger pro rata share of the liquidity and so that I get a higher share of the fees? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. So if you like if you provide a large volume of liquidity, then of course the shares 
the prorata shares that you get is proportional to the amount of liquidity that you have provided compared to those who are already there, compared to the past liquidity providers. So if you provide 99% of the liquidity in the pool, you will basically get 99% of the fee uh, revenues that uh, the pool is making. And that's exactly your incentive to provide liquidity. But then this raises the question about the competition that you've been alluding to, right? So I go and I see like, uh, or, you know, maybe, so I was sending in the trade. And so maybe Andrea sees my trade and goes like, all right, I'm going to put in a ton of liquidity. So I'll pick up all the fees. But then you see the same trade that I'm doing. And you also put in a ton of liquidity. Then neither of you would be, uh, you know, close to 100%, let's say, of the of the liquidity provision. So how is, so what actually happens given that, Multiple people could, in theory, provide liquidity. Right. Of course, competition among liquidity. Me, there is uh, me. There is di- there is different form of competition. I think one form of competition is what you alluded to: competition among liquidity providers. Of course, like uh, this is like reducing the revenues for two reasons. First is that uh, they are not getting like this ninety nine percent or like close one hundred percent pro rata shares of the fee. And second is that the more liquidity is added to the pool, the smaller is the price impact of the trade. No, as you all know based on the work that you have done. You see that if you have a deeper pool, price impact gets lower. And as a result, uh, liquidity providers are running less from the price impact. So in a way, if they, if they, and they cannot coordinate on the provision of liquidity, they will, they will suffering from competition because they will, uh, they will get like uh, less revenue from fees and also less revenues from the price impact. Because as we know, the, the, the liquidity provider are earning from the price impact of the trades. So, but just just to clarify then, so then ex ante, how do liquidity providers deal with this, right? So if if Andreas doesn't know how many other people are going to also basically do the same thing, how does it affect whether he even does try to provide this liquidity? Yeah, me, the, right, me, I think, I think the, the way would be, I mean, there are different ways to deal with this situation. I mean, one one possibility would be to of course uh beat i me if if there is like a lot of competition then i think you also want to fight for block space so if you are able to get access to the block and uh, kick out somebody else who also wants to provide just in time liquidity then there will be one way to do that the other way which is i think how things work as i understand works at the moment is to be somewhat collaborating or partnering with uh with a builder right because this uh I mean, I think I want to make the point that in the new, I mean, this 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 just in with the brother is operating on your swap pools, which are deployed on the Ethereum blockchain. And as we know, the Ethereum blockchain has gone through a transformation where there are like uh, the so-called searchers who are searching for uh, MEB opportunities. There are the builders who are putting this ban the, the 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 transactions into the blocks, and there are validators who are like uh, proving the blocks. And uh, and I think the the these just-in-time liquidity providers play the role of searchers. So they try to build bundles, including the liquidity that they want to provide, the swap transactions that they want to to to, to match in terms of liquidity, and also the order of the tracking liquidity. So they submit uh, these bundles to to the builders. And if they are they have good relation with the builders, as we know the builders have a lot of private order flow, then they will be able to convince the builder to execute their own transaction, right? Instead of transactions of other uh, just-in-time liquidity providers. So the relation with the builders plays a key role in terms of uh, determining which liquidity provider will be successful and which not. So, okay, so let me just do a quick recap here. Um, so just so we were all on the same page and the people uh, in our audience understand also the subtle differences here. So there is 
there's two there's few things to distinguish, right? So is there's the smart app contract application, let's say Uniswap, right? Where a trade gets generated and that gen that trade then gets submitted for processing to the blockchain network. Right. So think about it. I think about it as there's an application level and then it goes to the execution level. Now you could imagine that just-in-time liquidity, as you describe, it could be a feature of the smart contract and of the application. But at the moment, this is not what we're talking about. And so, again, this is maybe important for an audience that is not entirely familiar with all the details of the blockchain. The way a blockchain works is the transaction gets created by an application. It then gets put into the, if you want, settlement network. And in the settlement network or in the settlement process, things can still happen. So one problem that we know we've not discussed on the podcast is the so-called MEV extraction. So you could see something called a sandwich trade that occurs after a transaction has been submitted. Now, this is not what we're after here. But what, as I understand the problem that you describe is that it is possible that a trade gets observed and then somebody observes that this trade could be something valuable. Then they make an addition to the liquidity pool, which is an additional transaction, which would be processed before the trade, so that then there would be a different pool composition. So the application would actually look different by the time the the trade gets submitted. If I may say, well, add one more thing. So this is also important maybe for an audience is because there's a difference to traditional markets. When you have a traditional market and say Fahad and I, Fahad, I put in a limit order, I take a market order and I trade against Fahad's order. This is the message and this is what is being processed by, say, a stock exchange and then sent to settlement. In blockchain land, um, it is the processing of what actually it happens as a trade happens always at the time when the trade occurs in the pool. And that is not the time when you submit an order. So between the time that you think you're making a trade and that it actually gets included in the blockchain and processed, things can still happen to this mempool, right? So I, so not to this mempool, to the application. So I'm sorry for my lengthy explanation, but I think this is quite important because it's, it's rather subtle um, because it, it affects though who knows what at which time and who acts at which time, right? Because in your model and you just, the problem they describe really is something that happens after people have already made all other decisions as so a single entity, if you want, that can possibly, you know, inject themselves and do stuff. Right? This is very different from our traditional world. There. So, if if I can pick up on that and maybe also ask a question following it. So, I think Andreas, the point I guess you're making is that um, things don't actually uh, count or uh, until they're on the block on the blockchain, and there's a distinction between me generating a transaction essentially creating an order to trade um, and it actually ending up on the blockchain. And so part of, uh, I think what Augustino was describing at one point was this idea of searchers and builders. And so, you know, the builders are the ones who create the blocks and the searchers are sending them chunks of transactions or, you know, sets of transactions. Uh, but then that sort of, I think, you know, brings forth this question about, uh, yeah, so it's not that I have an order to trade and it's going to end up on the blockchain at the time that I send it in or even on some kind of like, uh, let's call it exogenous schedule. Like it's not like 10 seconds later or 12 seconds later, uh, it's going to end up on there. Uh, it's going to have to do with this sort of interaction of these a a economic agents, shall I say, um, searchers and builders. And so I don't want to go too far afield from, you know, sort of uh, the, the scope of the, of the work that we're discussing of yours, but 
nonetheless, if you could provide some context on sort of the relationship between searchers and builders and how it might affect outcomes, um, that um, could, could you just, or Andreas, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I want to definitely want to interject something because that's actually very important because it's an ongoing discussion that we see in the in the world beyond the blockchain world, in particular in the regulatory space. Um, and this is the following: there is the kind of there's a certain theme where people say same role, same obligation. So, say for instance, a decentralized exchange should be treated like a like an exchange less brokerage because it does exactly the same. And this is really critical that that's actually there's really subtle but a very important differences here. And treating them the same way is just not right, right? So you're missing actually, you know, trying to you're trying to squeeze a round peg into a square hole here, um, because as you say, and and I think this is one of the things that your work brings out that there is really the, the difference matters, and there's different economic mechanisms that arise because of this. Yeah, I I, I was just asking, so if you could flesh out any bit of the how the actual economic interaction evolves in practice between the searchers and the builders yes me i mean the yeah i think this is uh yeah the i also yeah i i will answer this question then i want to go back also to the relation with the mev and the sentient attack that andreas mentioned uh so in terms of like uh the, the interaction between the searcher and builders i think as as i understand uh, at the moment the just-in-time liquidity providers basically play the role of searchers. So the, what they are doing is constantly scanning the, the public mempool, identifying large swap transactions, and then uh, jitting liquidity. So like uh, somewhat adding uh, an order of providing liquidity for this specific swap. So they typically, they typically try to really uh, put an order, uh, limit order, or like an order of liquidity at uh, a price range which is very close to the to the current swap price so at least at one tick around the existing swap swap and then uh, of course uh, they immediately sandwich this uh, swap by detra- by providing an opposite order of detracting this liquidity then the idea is that they compete uh, with other um, with other um, uh, searchers for adding this swap into their own bundles because of course other uh, other searches will also want to take these swap transactions perhaps want to front run this transaction right or they want to maybe uh do a sandwich attack or they might want to even like put in their own uh, I mean, they, they might even want to um match it in terms of liquidity they like want to maybe beat liquidity uh, i mean just in time with the providers uh, themselves so the idea is that I mean the they they compete uh, and they want to outbid other searchers who also wants to sweep to use the swap in their bundle and uh, yeah, outbid. So when you say outbid, you're you're talking about out, outbid. I'm I'm talking about the bids that they are they they mean in order to get their transactions uh, into the block, they have to pay the builders, right? And uh, they have to pay a fee to the builders. So when they say outbid, I mean competing with other searchers in terms of bidding the fees and making sure that their fee is uh, sufficiently large so that uh, the, um, the, um, the builders will take their own bundles and add it into the block. And uh, of course, like uh, in a world of perfect information, let's say that we are on, uh, on a public pool, and with rational players, I mean, we expect this to happen only if uh, a G transaction is more profitable than all the other possible MEV bundles that are using the same swap, right? If you if you are really profiting a lot from uh, jitting uh, a swap, 
then uh, and you are profiting more than uh, other uh, searchers who are also trying to construct bundles using your using the swap transaction, then you will be uh, the one who, who, will, who will succeed, right? Otherwise, you will fail because, for example, if there is uh, another uh, MEB searcher who wants to execute a sandwich attack and uh, his sandwich transaction is more profitable than, than, the, the, than, than the fees that you would earn from your uh, just-in-time liquidity transaction, then you will not be willing to outbid him. And as a result, you will not be successfully uh, being uh, jitting this transaction. Jitting, I mean, just in time liquidity providing. So, so how how sort of that's me. I guess how um, efficient is this bidding process in the sense that do the gains either from the jitting or if it happens to be a sandwich attack, do the gains tend to go then to the builders or? Me, the gain. The, I mean, there is the usual process of transferring fees to the builder. Like you, you in the end, uh, the the profits of the transactions are partly shared with the builders because in order that me you are willing to. To beat the- so I mean, I mean it more from like an empirical perspective, like in, in practice, how because I you know in theory you can you can write it in a way that yeah yeah no I agree I mean in, empirically I'm, we haven't checked how much of the I mean I haven't computed how much of the fees that are being paid by the searcher to the builders uh, what portion of these fees accruing to them uh, and how how does it compare with the value of the transaction but I presume that. Uh, it's probably a large. I mean, they are they are they are definitely profiting, but they are sharing a substantial part of their profits with uh, with the builders. But I don't I don't have the exact number. We haven't looked. This is a great point. I think we should definitely check. I mean, if I if I make an analogy with the MEV, where most of the the profits are accruing to the to the builders, right? Uh, then uh, I presume that the same should hold true for just in time liquidity provider. I don't see any difference in terms of. The economic mechanism, which is leading to a transfer or wealth transfer of fees from uh, searchers to builders, like similar to MEV. Like when you search for MEV transactions, then you're willing to bid up to the value of the transactions. As a result, the fee that you pay is a very significant portion of the gains that you would have made from this sandwich transaction. But we just didn't check that yet. I have a bit of, a, I guess, an odd question, which is that can you, are there cases where we see sandwich attacks in concert with jitting? Because it occurs to me that you know you get fees from the from the guy doing the sandwich attack too. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a great uh, question, Fad. Like I can answer this question. I mean, I can answer this question more like uh, conceptually and theoretically. We haven't seen yet empirically, but I think the trade-off that is being faced is the following. Like, I mean, should you be? I mean, if you identify a large swap, then you want to decide: should I? JIT this swap? Should I provide liquidity uh, for execution of this swap? Or should I do a back running or front running, I mean, back running transaction or a sandwich attack? And then I think the, the typical forces, the typical trade off that you face, I think, is the following that if you do, if you execute a JIT transactions, then you have to basically pay the fee to provide liquidity and the fee to take out the liquidity. So it's two orders. Now you first submit an order of providing this uh, liquidity, then the swap executes, and then you have to submit another order to the private liquidity. Are those fees, you're talking about gas fees there? Like what? what... Uh, yeah, here I'm referring to gas fees. Fees for uh, for adding your order, sorry. See, fee for adding your order to the to the member. But so that's not really going to scale with like the size of the trade though, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. This doesn't scale with the size of the trade. 
then of course, if you top up the pool liquidity, your price impact will become lower, right? Because if you add more liquidity to the pool, then the price impact coming from the execution of soft transaction is not large. So ultimately, most of the revenue comes from the fees that uh, the, the swap order is providing. If you do a sandwich attack instead, uh, then uh, or if, I mean, or, or, or you back run this transaction, then uh, suppose that you back run it, then you would be somewhat pay the fee only once, no? At the time where you decide to back run it, but as you said, the fee is a fixed cost. But of course, you wouldn't be earning the the profit from the fees, right? Because you are executing your, the, the swap yourself. You are just trying to gain from the price impact in this case. So, so I had something that would something a little more complicated in mind in the sense of like it would require some coordination, which is like, if I wanted to JIT this thing, but I see that somebody else, I see Andreas is going to, you know, do a sandwich attack. Could I, you know, provide the liquidity, put in his sandwich attack and then remove the liquidity. So I get fees from his sandwich attack and I get fees from the initial, I, I, that sounds like that probably is like, that requires a certain amount of coordination, right? Because I have to be able to see his sandwich attack attempt. So, but um, I, I could see that being beneficial for the liquidity provider because there's actually more trading then. And I guess the, the, the sandwich attack is still coming off. Um, and in some sense, it's easier to do a sandwich attack when there's like more liquidity in the pool, right? Because if you have like some slippage tolerance, it's going to be harder to actually broach the slippage tolerance. Right, right. Me, I agree. I mean, in principle, if you can identify a sandwich attack, then you could create a bundle where you put your order of prime liquidity, the sandwich attack, and then your order to the track liquidity. As you said, there is always a chance that the sandwich attack will will fail because it exceeds the maximum slippage tolerance that you specify. But the JIT is actually helping there, right? Yeah, the JIT, yeah, I agree. The JIT is basically reducing the price impact, so there is a smaller chance. That it's less like you're going to actually boost the, the slippage. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's a great point. Well, really, what you do is when you do that, right? So what you're taking, you're taking actually away the profit from the sandwich attack, right? If you if you add liquidity, all that happens is that the sandwich attack, the profit for the sandwich is actually going to want to decline in the amount of liquidity that's provided. So I think, if anything, you're actually taking away the uh, the power of the sandwich attack. Because the price impact is smaller. Correct, yes. So the sandwich attack that you would see, if there was a sandwich attack and you can see it, all that you do is, because that's of fixed size, right? Now you can make the case, um, if there is just-in-time liquidity, you can make a much larger sandwich attack, right? And so that creates more trading fees, which is good for you. But um, you, all that you do here is you, you're kind of screwing the sandwich attack a little bit, right? Because That's all the more reason for me to do it if you're doing the sandwich attack. If I can figure it out, then... <laughs> Yeah. Right. Now, you, you're getting very, very subtle here, if I may say so, right? Um, I think it's more important, actually, to probably think, if I can bring it back to the to the economics here for one moment, right? So, I mean, you know, a sandwich attack is, so just for the just so the audience understands, is essentially it's some form of front-running attack, right? A sandwich attack means you move the price before somebody else trades, and then you sell, I mean, implicitly, it's not quite the case, but implicitly you sell to the person that you're front-running, at a higher price, and you pocket the the difference. This is this is essentially your profit. Um, here, however, this is not the case, right? Because here you supply liquidity. If this was a real market, let's say, oh, sorry, not a real market. If this was a standard market. If you supply extra liquidity, you actually have an extra risk, right? So, and that's whereas a sandwich attack is a risk-free profit, right? Here you actually would have extra risk. Now, in an AMM, and so you make the fee, we understand that, but you also have the extra risk. Now, in an AMM, we refer to this as you're facing potentially an impermanent loss. That's that's the term or positional loss that people have, right? Because 
you know, as you provide liquidity, if you withdraw it right away with your fees, which if you want to realize that profit, you have the additional cost of possibly having the 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 positional loss, right? So I, I just thought it's important to point that out so that we don't we, we we're tossing a lot of words here around. So it's very important to differentiate the two two effects here a little bit. So, but just going back to to the original discussion, so one of the things that we're observing here, and I think this is what what you're pointing out, Agostino, is again that at the settlement layer, so at the processing layer of blocks, a lot of funky stuff happens that we're now slowly becoming aware of, and that the you know the app developers themselves actually do not know themselves either, right? So, and and this is a kind of effect. So the the cool or the interesting thing for us economists is is like things that happen on the settlement layer now all of a sudden have an impact on the running of the application itself, which is nuts, right? Because you normally think, well, the blockchain is just a thing. It's just a tool. But there's actually, it's, it has its own economic ecosystem. It's really important to understand this. Now, if, if you come back to Agostino's problem, right? So now you are a regular liquidity provider here in this context, right? So what... Can you just point out again, so what exactly is the issue that you should have with just-in-time liquidity provision? Yeah, the issue is that, uh, I mean, on the surface, it seems that, uh, I mean, everybody should benefit from all liquidity. At least if you if you don't think, at least when I thought about this problem for the first time, I was thinking, okay, uh, having, having more liquidity should be beneficial for the ecosystem, like it should be beneficial for traders, it should be beneficial for the passive liquidity providers, those who who are not really sophisticated, but they're just depositing assets in the pool and waiting. And it should be beneficial for those who are topping up the liquidity in the pool. But then I think if you think a bit more carefully on the problem, you could see that uh, the that there are some costs that needs to be taken into account uh, in this mechanism. And I would like to like slow down a little bit and uh, discuss those costs uh, in some detail. So if we think about... Uh, Passive liquidity provision, passive liquidity providers. Uh, I mean, they they basically deposit the assets uh, in the pool, and they face the risk of being picked off in both direction of the price movement, right? Because if there is uh, an informed order coming, uh, then uh, it's true that they will learn the fees uh, coming from the trades, but uh, they might be picked off because, for example, the price is moving, uh, as you mentioned before, in the, in the, in the, in the wrong direction for them. And, uh, and there is nothing they can do. I think we have one other paper that shows exactly this point, that even if they would uh, like to take the liquidity out of the pool, they will not be able to do that because they will never be able to compete with those arbitrageurs who are like trying to exploit uh, this price misalignment. So this is basically uh, the problem faced by the, the passive liquidity provider. They are at the mercy of the market and they face potential losses uh, from, uh, from informed traders. Now, on the other end, the just-in-time liquidity providers, they have the so-called last mover advantage, right? They, they really can opt out of unfavorable trades. If they see that the trade is informed, they might decide not to, to provide liquidity against this trade. And this, of course, reduces the risk, or in other words, it puts the risk of being adversely selected equal to zero, right? Because they, they can avoid it, assuming that they are, of course, enough sophisticated to detect whether or not an order is informed. But if they have this degree of sophistication, they will definitely be able to, to avoid any adverse selection. Now, the issue is that if the just in time liquid starts dominating in terms of uh, providing, let's say, 98% of the liquidity in the pool compared to the, to the passive liquidity providers, 
then they can potentially earn uh, mostly the transaction fees from uh, uninformed traders that uh, passive liquidity providers are were depending on. So all of a sudden, the just-in-time liquidity providers will basically crowd out the passive liquidity providers because the prorata fees earned by the passive liquidity providers are now being taken by the, the just-in-time liquidity providers, right? And uh, this is actually at the, I mean, assuming, of course, uh, the, the final effect is that uh, the passive liquidity providers are still subject to the same adverse selection cost. So assuming that this adverse selection cost from informed trading remains the same, but uh, they are earning less fees because their product shares is going down, exactly because uh, most uh, most liquidity is being provided by the active liquidity provider. And this is really the key. I mean, the the key I, I, um, point that we had, the key trade off that we highlight in the paper that uh, it really mean everything depends really on. Uh, what is the elasticity of the order flow with respect to the to the depth of the liquidity pool? So if more liquidity deposited in the pool leads to more uninformed orders being submitted, then it means that the volume is going up, the trading volume is going up. And as a result, even if the pro rata share of fees earned by the passive liquidity providers is going down, uh, still the, the volume is large enough that in the aggregate they are better off. Right? They are getting maybe 1%, but of a bigger pie compared to 1% of the same pie, which would be the case, for example, if the elasticity of the order flow with respect to the liquidity pool is small. So if, like, say, you top uh, liquidity in the pool, you add more liquidity to the pool, but the set of trades, the order flow remains the same, then uh, it means that the trading volume stays the same. And if you are only earning, let's say, 1% of the fees generated from this trading volume, that will not be enough for you to stay in the market, right? And that's the reason, that's exactly the situation where the active liquidity providers would be crowding out the passive liquidity providers. Right, right. So, um, so if we abstract from the competition at all and just think of like a single active liquidity provider, what is the constraint to not providing um, more than, you know, essentially infinite amounts of liquidity. Because what I'm getting at is like you were talking about, you know, 1% of the fees for a passive liquidity provider is higher when there's more trading potentially than, you know, a higher percentage for, for less trading. But um, in some sense, that seems to assume that the, the active liquidity provider is not just going to like blow up liquidity provision to the point that it's essentially 0% for the, uh, for the passive liquidity providers. So what is the dimension that gets the, you know, let's call it the active liquidity provider to a finite amount of liquidity provision. Right, I mean, I think in our model it would be the budget constraint that they have, like they have a limited amount of resources uh, available so they cannot like provide an infinite amount of liquidity. In practice, you also have that uh, there is always some uh, probability that you have not detected uh, that this order flow is informed. So if, for example, the order flow happens to be informed and you provide an infinite amount of liquidity, your adverse selection cost will be infinite, right? So then it depends really on the quality of your monitoring technology. But if you are sure that uh, this order is uninformed, then, of course, uh, you want to crowd out. I mean, actually, you want to crowd out the liquidity provider, but you need to be careful to one thing here, uh, which I think is basically uh, the problem, even if you would have an infinite budget, that if you crowd out the passive liquidity providers, so that means that there is no liquidity to start with in the pool, then you cannot really top up the liquidity because no investor will come and trade if there is uh, very limited liquidity in the pool or if there is zero liquidity in the pool, you have no idea about the prices and you get me. Suppose that you have a tiny amount of liquidity, then 
you are still like shooting a uh, foot in the dark, right? You don't know at what price you will execute because liquidity is too too shallow. So, so, so I, I want to set that last point aside for a moment because I want to ask a clarifying question though on the on the point about like in practice, is it that liquidity providers these these uh, active liquidity providers who are jitting? Is it that they're using their own wealth to come up with the capital that they use, or or are they able to borrow and do things like that? Where does they are allowed to borrow? Like they could they could get a flash loans, for example, and uh, just use it to buy tokens and provide this liquidity. And then uh, at the time where they they try this liquidity, they could return the flash loan. Right? This this happens within the same block, so you can definitely do that uh, in the same way you do a you do a sandwich attack. Right? You typically get a, you use a flash loans to to, to get the tokens that you need for execution, and then you return them within the same block. So this can be done exactly in the same way for uh, just-in-time liquidity providers. The only reason why you don't want to do that is precisely because just-in-time liquidity provider only exists if there are passive liquidity providers. So if there is no liquidity in the pool, there is no way to, to add additional liquidity. So you cannot go from zero to infinity, right? You have to, to have some basic amount of liquidity, and you don't want passive liquidity providers to disappear, which would be the case, of course, if you get uh 99.99 percent of the shares but but that doesn't mean there isn't a unilateral deviation right like so for example given that active given that passive liquidity providers are providing a certain amount of liquidity i think about my incentive problem um but anyway i think andreas wanted to jump in here yeah so so first i actually want to make a, a point here which again to to bring this back to traditional markets because i think there's a very important and subtle difference here right so in, in so if we think of a high frequency trader who provides liquidity on an existing market what they try to do is they try to be at the top of the book whenever it works for them and then disappear whenever it's bad for them now there's a similar mechanism of creating a negative externality with your behavior towards uh say um not passive but less sophisticated liquidity providers which is that HFTs will post and they will get hit with their posts. And then when they realize they're going at stuff, then orders that are behind them will get would get picked off, right? Now here, however, the, the mechanism is actually much worse because here you actually have the option to provide liquidity after the fact, after you see that it is beneficial. And so this is essentially in, in the traditional market, if, say, there's no passive liquidity provision, okay, so there's still high-frequency traders that could lead to dislocations of prices and so on and to, to minimize liquidity or to reduce liquidity. But here it could literally unravel, right? So here it's literally the case that if the high-frequency traders are able to pick up all the good orders and they don't leave enough for the bad orders, if, this, if the degree of positional losses, asymmetric information, or the risk, really, of price movements is too large, you have a complete unraveling of a market. I mean, this is what you kind of pointed out there. And I think it's really important to understand that difference. So this is now happily the, the blockchain world is working on fixing to, of this, right? So because, I mean, the Flashbots protocol is one example, right? Um, and hopefully at some point we're going to get totally hidden transactions where this, as, as Fahad calls it, jitting. So just-in-time liquidity provision is simply not, not an option anymore, right? Um, and in, in some sense, that's... You know, in terms, if you think of the total risk of a market, in particular, that would apply to the kinds of, maybe that doesn't apply to trading Ether against uh, a stable coin, which uh, where there's sufficient amount of information, but for anything that is smaller, right, where there's possibly higher adverse selection risk, there you could see uh, definitely the unraveling of the market, right? Is, is there is there a way to sort of allow for jitting, but yet not have some of these downsides that we're describing? So. 
for example, um, if uh, the essentially the right to JIT would be auctioned off by like, you know, so basically something where you um, give, you know, the first uh, the first transaction in the block can uh, you auction off sort of the right to be the first transaction or something where you auction off sort of um, uh, yeah, a position in the block or something like that. Um, and then you distribute the, the gains to the passive liquidity providers. That's, uh, that's a great point, Juan. And in fact, this is actually one of the fixes we are proposing in the study, right? We're saying, okay, if you want to somewhat incentivize passive liquidity providers to stay uh, because you don't want this unraveling of the market that Andreas was mentioning, you want still like a sufficient amount of liquidity there, then uh, one possibility would be to create, let's say, a two-tier two uh, fee system, right? Where parts of the fees that are being earned by the active liquidity providers who are like, uh, dominating the market because of their bigger share are transferred to the passive liquidity providers in a way that they want to stay in the market. So redistribution of fees, one way, which I think in principle is also implementable because you can observe like which transactions are being JIT and which transactions that are being uh, generating fees that are accruing to the passive liquidity providers. And as a result, you can redistribute these profits. I mean, that's one way that I see how to fix the problem. You, you have to be very careful, though, with, uh, I mean, not you personally, but one has to be very careful with the design of these of these markets and these applications, right? Because once you start to have, um, you know, when, when you try to do something very intricate, um, it, it is possible that you get it wrong, right? And if you get it wrong, um, in terms of how you're designing it, then, you know, you, you can have the unraveling of the market again, right? Number one. Number two, um, keep in mind that, so one of the things that I think is really appealing about the DeFi market and the traditional or the, the simple versions of it is that it allows people to access and use the market in a simplified manner. And so one of the lessons I think that we see from our modern markets is that, you know, when, when it becomes too, when it requires too, too high level of sophistication, then you kind of have catering to a particular clientele and that clientele, you know, maybe also proposes a mechanism that just works for them. Like we see this in exchanges where a particular client proposes a particular order type that allows them to make a profit at the expense of everybody else. If we see the same mechanism in DeFi, then we're kind of dooming the market, right? We're taking away all the advantages of it. Yeah, I was thinking the way this fierce uh, fee system is something similar to, to rebates. Now, TBL, you have a market-making rebate in traditional finance, which ensures that those who are providing uh, services, market services are being compensated. But of course, one is to be careful that it doesn't become uh, too exclusive, right? That you only may end up benefiting a specific clientele. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think we, we tend to forget this also is the is the importance of risk sharing, right? Um, because, you know, ultimately liquidity provision, being there in a market over a stretch of time is risky, right? And uh, if this risk gets unequally distributed, right, so we, we'll, we may see the, the unraveling, right? So, you know, everybody in the market is always after what is the best thing for me and what is the best that I can get. Um, in a market with frictions, that can create problems, right? In a, in a, in a perfect market, um, obviously, everybody acts into, according to their own self-interest. We get an equilibrium. It works out. We have allocative efficiency and everything. But not in a market with frictions. Right? Market with frictions, it becomes a much harder problem, right? And so... They have the ability for people to share risk and share rewards can lead to a, an improved social outcome. Um, 
Now, it sounds like I'm talking as a socialist, but this is just basic economics, right? <laughs> markets with, let's put it differently, markets with externalities, uh, the competition of markets with externalities is a very hard problem, right? And is the the answers and the outcomes are not always obvious. This is a message for those of us, for those of you who think of themselves as capitalists and, mark and, and believers in markets. Your markets may be more complicated than you think. So that's that's certainly the case. But, uh, but in, is it fair to say that the design space uh, in the blockchain is different than the sort of, I'm not even sure if there is in some sense a design space on limit order books, but um, like, like for example, the ability to auction off the monopoly right to JIT on a given block, let's say, right? Because it seems to me that there is sort of a first order benefit of JITting. The problem is that it's not the only effect. It has, it has sort of like economic implications downstream, right? The idea that somebody is going to provide a, a wall of liquidity for me to trade into is really great if you can just have that effect and nothing else after that. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I, I so yeah, there, it's very important to, of course, not, uh, it's very important to be careful as, as we try things, right? I think that's part of the point you're making is like, it might sound like it makes sense. And then you didn't realize a, a variety of things that could happen, uh, particularly in this space where you can have like very subtle things like, you know, re-entrancy attacks and stuff like that, um, uh, that even computer scientists won't think of at first. Um, so we, there's, I think it's important to be careful, but it does nonetheless seem to me like there, the, the, there is the opportunity to do things in this space that you wouldn't be able to do in a traditional centralized market precisely because you can literally code these things into smart contracts. Um, uh, but again, that, that doesn't mean that you're going to not overlook code pads or, or various other issues that could cause problems. Right. So, Fad, if I hear you, you're saying I mean, this would be a great mechanism if we can shut down all the equilibrium effects. In some sense, yes. Uh, but, 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 but you can you can design a different mechanism that has. So again, like the idea of auctioning off the value, um, you'll still have economic effects, but hopefully, uh, in that case, you don't have the the negative effects that we're describing because you're not disincentivizing the passive liquidity providers because you're specifically sharing the benefits. Uh, you're passing the benefits on to them. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other economic effects that, that, that you know, I haven't thought of coming up with something in a few seconds here. Um, this is the reason why I think actually like rigorous academic work is important because you can convince yourself of all sorts of things if you only spend a few minutes thinking about them and, you know, don't actually formalize anything. Um, but, you know, I do think one of the interesting things about this space is that the, there is a design space, so to speak. Um, it's just once you specify things, you got to be really careful about thinking about um, the economic effects uh, that arise from that. Yeah. So if I may also just interject there, right? So there's there's a lot of things that require some understanding often. Um, I mean, we know, for instance, in, in traditional markets that different assets trade differently, right? So treasuries trade often differently from, from stocks for a variety of reasons. Some of them historic, others are also functional. So, for instance, uh, to, we had a discussion early on uh, before the podcast started about this. So, as I understand it, in treasuries, for instance, there's mechanisms um, by which when a trade occurs or when there's an indication of a trade occurring, there's a short period in which there is essentially an auction, which leads to what's referred to as size discovery. So, for different sides of a trade can actually both contribute um, to an order, to an existing trade. So that potentially the amount, total amount traded is much larger than what the original trade was for. Now, 
again, this requires a lot of sophistication of different market participants, which is warranted in treasuries, right? Because this is such a big market with very sophisticated players. Probably not so much for the market for any normal asset like stock or whatever, right? So, which is mostly mostly uh, traded by by retail investors. And uh, going back to your point about the design space, right? So there there is room for also trying to come up with mechanisms, trading mechanisms that cater to the the underlying security that is being traded in the market, which has a demand for that. Right? So not it's as as it is. I don't think we have any any result. <laughs> In in theoretical economics, which says X Y Z is the ideal market structure, right? We know that there are some some will work better than others. So you know, have uh, Larry Glosson has written this you know insightful paper of the inevitability of the electronic linked order book, but obviously predicated on a particular set of of features of a of, of a security, right? We don't see limit order books for. Uh, FX as much, right? Or at least not to the same degree, right? We see a lot of OTC trading in certain types of assets for obvious reasons often. So then th thinking about it again, like uh, the extent to which, uh, I mean, we've been talking sort of about just-in-time liquidity and I, I would say it's uh, somewhat uh, uh, focusing maybe on some of the negatives of just-in-time liquidity, but I'm wondering empirically, um, do, do we have any sense of what the effects on passive liquidity provision has been of just-in-time liquidity and whether it's differential across different types of pools. Cause kind of, I think to Andreas's point about like, you know, the market structure that's ideal may differ depending on what exactly we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I, I will, I will share some empirical uh, findings that, uh, that I made that I've read about. And also I want to answer, sorry if I, I try to answer, this question theoretically first, and then I will discuss a little bit empirics. So you're saying, okay, when does it, uh, when is it bad? No, when is just in time liquidity provision bad? I think me, what we what we really argue in the paper, and this is something that we should actually verify empirically. That's uh, that's a great point. Is that uh, in all for all for all tokens pairs, where you don't see a lot of elasticity. In the sense that uh, if you have more liquidity, your the flow doesn't increase much. Right, it increases maybe sublinearly, or it stays constant. For all those pairs, then just in time liquidity provision is bad, because again the the, the volume is not going up, uh, but the pro rata share of the fees accruing to the active liquidity providers is larger, and as a result, the passive liquidity providers are losing. And this, I presume, I mean, I I I think this is probably the case for many altcoins, no? Still coins, I mean, tokens, pairs, which are very volatile. Whereas if you think about pairs, which are like more stable, in my view, these are also the type of pools, let's say USDC versus USDT or USDC maybe versus ETH. These are also the pools where more liquidity actually causes a substantial increase in order flow. And this is exactly when uh, just-in-time liquidity provision is actually benefiting the passive liquidity providers. This, I think, is something that I'm not, uh, we have not yet verified empirically, but I, if I had to guess, that's what I would, uh, what I would say. I would say that for pools or uh, with managing very unstable coins, just in the provision is bad, but for pools managing more stable coins or coins with very low volatility, I presume that there is a benefit in, uh, in JTIC. Now, back to the empirics, I would like to mention that if you think about uh, me, the, this just-in-time providers really started after Uniswap V3 was deployed. No? 
And if we look at uh, like the, from the development of Unisop V3, which I think happened uh, sometime in May 2021, uh, till till uh, till July 2022, I was reading that uh, there have been basically over 95% of liquidity provision, uh, jitting liquidity provision was just provided by a single account. And uh, and in total, like uh, there are less than 20 addresses which have tried to supply liquidity. And I think in terms of the, just to give you a sense of the, the magnitudes, I think if we think about uh, the, the volume of Uniswap V3, the trading volume of Uniswap V3 over this period of time, like May 2021 to July 2022, there was about 60, 600 billion trading volume. And uh, the provision of liquidity by JIT providers was about $2 billion. So basically zero, roughly, I mean, $2 billion out of 600, out of, sorry, uh, $600 billion is basically about 0.3%. So 0.3% of liquidity that uh, has been provided uh, for Uniswap V3 was coming from just-in-time liquidity providers. So that means that most of it was not coming from them. I mean, this is a mean. This, of course, are data which uh, refers to the period 2021 to July 2022. I mean, I think one would have to look at what happened after that, whether or not it went up or down. And I'm thinking whether, like, uh, I mean, this could be related to the question that maybe the market design at the moment is not great, and as a result, uh, somewhat um, there is somewhat there is um, some uh, resilience to provide just-in-time liquidity. And also, I think uh, it looks like that uh, the only successful transactions of just in time, the only successful just in time liquidity provider transactions, or most of the uh, like half of the successful transactions, the, which means the ones which ended up being included in the block and executed, were coming from just in time liquidity providers who were topping liquidity just a few ticks uh, around the exist uh, the, the current price. So. Many transactions, just in time liquidity transactions, which are providing liquidity deeper, like in the book, like for example, picking a, a segment of the Uniswap V3 curve, which was far away from the for the current swap price, ended up not uh, ended up failing because they were not able to to attract any liquidity. So based on that, you're saying it's not a problem yet, or is there is there anything we can? So I mean, I'm not sure how much you you looked at the data, but is there any any cross sectional or time series uh, uh, features that you can identify there? So I'm asking because maybe from that we can learn the circumstances under which you know generally would say there could be a problem. Um, so it's number one, and now obviously number two. It's always a little difficult to say what what could be if if this becomes widespread, right? Especially once once uh, you know jump trading and and uh, figures out how to do that, then it could be a game changer, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we haven't looked yet at uh, cross section or time series of the data, but um, definitely is something that we I, at least I want to test this hypothesis that I'm mentioning about uh, more stable versus less stable pairs. How do they interact just in time liquidity provision? I mean, it is it is surprising from a, like from a theoretical economic perspective to have jitting be so small in the liquidity provision, right? Because just in terms of unilateral profitable deviations, right? I mean, yes, there's an equilibrium effect that it could dry up passive liquidity, but there is passive liquidity right now. And so, but then again, you know, I think you said the data you were alluding to goes to July 22. Yeah, July 22, I think we would have to look at the data after July 22. 
Yeah, another point I wanted to add is that uh, actually it's very the just in WWE is also very concentrated because around uh, half of it is provided uh, the Uniswap uh, USDC Ethereum uh, pool with uh, with five basis points fee. So that's the somewhat what the second the I mean that's the, the the pool with the largest uh, trading volume. Uh, and uh, if you look at the top 10 pools of Uniswap, they account for 95% of just-in-time liquidity. So they really mean it concentrates uh, where there is a large trading volume, right? which also makes sense. It's interesting because in some sense, you know, um, very a few, a few a half hours, so I mentioned something to the extent of when you actually provide just-in-time liquidity, you do face a potential risk afterwards, right? Um, and so what you just described seems to be you really do this only at the pools where the, where the risk is low. The advantage of that being also that the externality, the possible information externality that you provide is not that large on others potentially, right? Because that's really kind of the, the concern that we have with these markets, right? So that you, that, you know, the, there's, there's the high volatility cases, the case of asymmetric information. This is, the, this is where you jump in, right? Oh, that, that's kind of interesting, actually, right? Yeah, it's true. Because for this deeper pool, there is also, to some extent, less asymmetric information. It's like they are closer, let's say, to the treasury rather than to the equity markets, no? if we think about USDC or US and Ethereum. Another, another reason, I think, is because uh, if you want to hedge this risk, then uh, definitely, the let's say, the central, if you want to hedge some of the risk in centralized exchanges, then uh, there is definitely more liquidity in centralized exchange managing, let's say, USDC versus ETH rather than uh, centralized exchange managing, uh, you know, uh, the like, doesn't exist anymore, but uh, let's say Aave versus uh, Compound, for instance. So that's the reason if you want to edge risk, then you want to go to a pool which is deeper liquidity. So I have a bit of a naive question here. So uh, the uh, the advent of, say, jitting in in the, the context of decentralized exchanges and so on, there's nothing on the on the smart contract level that specifically enables it, right? Like, it, So it's not like there was an upgrade or something like that, and then people started doing this, right? So um, first of all, is that correct? And if so... Um, uh, I guess how aware are market participants of the ability to do this? Because it, it does. I hadn't heard about this very much. I guess um, a year ago, even. And usually, when that happens, it's because there's actually some kind of you know difference in the functionality that facilitates something from happening. But um, it doesn't. I don't think that's the case here. Yeah. No. As I understand, I mean, it's not really a functionality encoded in the smart contract. Let's say, I mean, they 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 top liquidity algorithmically. It's more like uh, probably I mean, it started with the uh, with the uh, with the with the new sub v three. So after the deployment of new sub v three, somehow like uh, there has been uh, like more sophistication added to the market. So this uh, influence market makers starting coming and. Uh, deciding to 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 implement this uh just in time liquidity provision but i don't know if it's due to the new structure i mean partly could be due to, do, to the fact that they can now decide uh, where they want to provide liquidity because they can submit limit orders right they can pick exactly the segment of the curve where to provide liquidity whereas before like it was harder because you had to provide liquidity for the entire segment of the curve so i don't know if that's the really the the triggering cause but uh i can 
I mean, as far as I know, I don't think there is any algorithmic uh, encoding of uh, just-in-time liquidity in the smart contracts. Is it related at all to sort of the, 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 the ecosystem of searchers and builders further developing? Because it, it does seem to me like there's this coordination aspect, right? In principle, the moment Uniswap V3 was live and, and you have a particular liquidity pool that's launched, you know, let's say the five basis point USDC, I can deploy an insane amount of, I can do an ad operation and deploy an insane amount of liquidity and pull it back to a remove operation. But I guess it's not really, I, I, don't, I, I take on more risk if I'm really just doing it in that way versus the, the way that we were describing with searchers, you know, putting together the exact sequence they want and giving them to builders, which I guess requires a certain amount of coordination. And in some sense, I guess that might say that if, so if that's true, um, and I'm, of course I'm just theorizing in the area, so I'm, I'm not saying it is true, but if it is the case, then I guess it's possible we'll see more jitting as, you know, these, these relationships, let's say, among searchers and builders and so on, uh, develop. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think you're raising a great point, Fad, because I mean, the, the, the numbers I quoted refers to the period before there was this division between builder, separa- uh, searcher, and, uh, and, uh, and validator. So it's possible that uh, after the merge, where there is, the, that, where there is more integration between uh, searchers and builders, searchers are just in time delivery providers too. Then we should we should I mean I expect to see more uh, just in time liquidity provision there. I think that's something that we should we we would need to check in the data. And so you alluded to um, I think you briefly touched on um, uh, potential ways to mitigate the let's say negative effects of uh, negative economic effects of uh, just in time liquidity. Um, uh, can you can you say more about that in terms of uh, one what you would suggest as a researcher and two. Um, uh, if you're aware of anything that, um, for example, Uniswap or some other uh, of these decentralized exchanges are actually thinking of doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, at the, I mean, what I know, I mean, what, what, we, what we are trying to argue in the paper is like uh, designing a mechanism similar to, to this fee, I mean, two-tier fee structure where you try to redistribute some of the profits to the passive liquidity providers. Again, exploiting ideas similar to what happens uh, in market making when there are rebates uh, in terms of uh, yeah in terms of like uh, what the uniswap uh, uniswap and other pools are doing to prevent uh, this effect from happening I meaning i don't i mean i'm not aware of any existing uh, mechanism that they are exploiting so i i think it's still i mean they I mean they are gliding that i mean i don't think they they also, I glided the problem that uh, we are studying in this paper, right? They, they, I think they, their focus has been more on ter- in terms of like when you should uh, do a G transaction versus when you should do an MEV transaction and uh, when is one more profitable than the other. Yeah, I'm just going to say this. So if I would be taking a more plain vanilla approach, right? So because the these effects happen on, on at different parts of the tech stack, if you want, um, in, in my mind, um, if just-in-time liquidity would be something desirable for a smart contract for DEX, then then they should be designing it and not leave it to the settlement structure. Likewise, it, it should be, the settlement structure shouldn't have a life of its own. I mean, that's something which I find, personally, I find this is actually a, a genuine threat to the whole blockchain ecospace, right? Uh, and if you think about the MEV extraction from arbitrage transaction. Arbitrage is so critical for the workings of our markets. This should happen at the application level. 
and not at the settlement level because you kind of create an unequal playing field there. And so, you know, if anything has to happen in this blockchain world, it's really have to, you have to have a proper separation of the two. Uh, otherwise, you know, they, they, because you basically create all of these unforeseen contingencies that could happen for an application that they have to look after. So in case, you know, just bringing it back to a much higher level, if you look at the recent DeFi regulation proposal for MyEsco, one of the things that are in there is that they want to hold DeFi platforms accountable for MEV extraction or mitigating effects of it, right? That's literally in the proposal. Where you, of course, go like, how would I know even how to do this, right? How can I can I do this under all circumstances? Because you sometimes can't, right? So this is really a problem at the protocol level that needs to be solved. So you know, in other words, uh, Andreas, you are envisioning uh, a smart contract which also implements the just-in-time liquidity provision. That's correct, yeah. So I, I envision two things. I envision if it is beneficial, if it's viewed as beneficial, then it should be something included in the smart contract, correct? And I also envision that we move into a into a setting where, you know, transactions actually have to be processed essentially without the transaction processor knowing anything about the transaction, right? Um, I think people are working on this, but I think this has to happen sooner rather than later, because otherwise, it, so if you take another a step back, right, we'll never see a widespread adoption of genuine finance applications in this space when you don't have a full understanding of what could happen to your to your life cycle of a trade um, because stuff can happen at the settlement layer. I mean, this, this, the insanity of this, if you if you think about a, imagine you, you submitted a, a trade to a stock exchange, right? And the stock exchange processes it, they have their time priority, but then the DTCC could decide they could actually, you know, change something in the in the back office and, and change the price or the cost of your transaction. This is just nuts, right? This is nuts. Nobody would accept that. <laughs> exactly. You, you want more, more predictability on trades execution. That's right. You need absolute certainty, actually, of the what happens at that layer. That's right. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which is, I think, the problem here, right? There is a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, you know, imagine you're a risk manager for an institution that wants to use this. <laughs> the, the risk that you say is, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> How's that going to fly? <laughs> yeah. And the yeah, yeah, I presume the risk is the risk you are highlighting is both on the side of the passive liquidity provider, but also on the side of the investor who is trading a large swap, right? Because you have no idea on what will be the price impact of your trade. Correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can you can for the investor side, if it works in your favor, that's a good thing, right? Um, yeah. If and to some degree, as the as the trader, the aggressive trader, the one who submits the market order, you can do you can protect yourself by limiting the price impact and the like, right? So, which is already what the what DeFi protocols have. So that side, I mean, in this particular case, this side has some level of certainty and some level of control. It's not clear that if we come up with something completely new, that that could not that that could not change, right? Um, but yeah, so. I mean, your point is well taken there, right? But you just need to know what's going on. I mean, even this, so just to be fair, even on the stock exchange, if you submit a market order, you actually may still get a different price than the one that you see in the order book because there's dark orders and all kinds of stuff happening, right? Fair enough. But it could be that the new limit order is added after you submitted your market order, right? And therefore you get a better execution. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we, we need to, you know, it's it has to be, you know, essentially it has to be trustless, right? So... You, you don't need to have to trust any any infrastructure to work. So you need to build it in such a way that it's trustless. Yeah, that's a very good point.
All right, um, Agostina, this was very interesting. I, I really appreciate the insights that you provided into your work, and I hope that the audience appreciates just, just as much. Um, at some point, we should probably have a provision to so that you can actually send questions in, um, so that we can answer them maybe in a in a separate AMA session or the night. Um, but for now, thanks so much, Agostino, for being here and for enlightening us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, you can find additional materials on owlexplains.com and can stay updated by following us on social media. <laughs> That's all for today. Yeah.